Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I'm a fellow dad, and I think of myself as a space monkey sometimes. I experiment with a lot of different systems in terms of health and habit change because I know that a lot of things work when they're novel and shiny. But what happens when the shine wears off? My question is always, which of these really have legs? Which of these can hold fast against the distraction and accelerated mission creep of ADHD? So the question is always, what missions I can successfully return from and report back to you on? Today, I have a couple of ADHD-centered tools for focus that I want to share with you each of which has survived stress testing from beyond the earth. Before we get into it, I wanted to let you know that we recently had an in-person dad strength meetup in Toronto. I hosted it at my place, Bang Personal Training. So I figured we would discuss health, both for our kids and for ourselves. And it made sense to begin with a quick warm-up to shake off the cobwebs and get into things. But You know, everyone seemed to have some kind of pain or injury or issue or at least needed a bit of extra time to bring everything online. In other words, there was a lot of groaning when we started to move around. So I wound up taking everyone through about 45 minutes of light but focused exercise. And it was clear to me that these guys needed some TLC. Maybe you need some TLC too. So I feel like I should bump up the frequency on these workshops. Stay tuned for that. I thought that you might like to hear a few quick takeaways from our discussion on that day. Uh, It was centered around health and fitness for both us and for our kids. One insight that one of our dads shared was that if his kid was going to eat ice cream, for example, he would then use a bit of screen time to learn about how they digest it, what happens in their bodies when they eat. So it's a, it's a very appealing thing to get on a screen. Why not use it for education? Uh, another dad talked about going to boxing classes and watching the circuit that his boxing coach had made for his kids. So they would skip, they would color, they would throw med balls around, and then they would go on an iPad. And it was all an organic part of a circuit. One thing was not more appealing or less appealing than another. One part was not better or moralized to be better than another. It was just all part of the experience. And he thought that was cool. Uh, We talked about politics. We talked about Singapore's 30-year timeline as a result of a one-party system and how our political systems are really incapable of truly prioritizing child development because the half-life of a political career is so much shorter here. Definitely something to think about. Final takeaway, a really great one from a new-ish dad, and that is trying to get everything right, make everything perfect, be the world's greatest father, have all of these uh, health details optimized. You know what? It may not be worth the stress. I always get a ton out of these discussions, and what I walked away from this event with was a little bit different. I realized that any dad who's really tuned in and working on being present and intentional, they're going to have some wisdom. And when we come together like this, it becomes a sharing of that wisdom. 
and from what I know, this was the default way of learning and growing as a community for most of human history. And there's something really energizing about tapping back into that. So if you're interested in checking out our weekly calls, you can go to dadstrength.com. The first taste is free. Actually, the first 10 are free. The first step is to go to dadstrength.com and schedule a quick chat with me. There's no sales pitch. I just want to get to know you and make sure that we are a good fit for you and vice versa. Now, for three ADHD-friendly ways to focus, let's get into it. All right, now I'm excited to share this with you. The first concept is preloading. So you know the feeling. It's the end of the day, and your energy and your focus have bottomed out. The problem is that you've still got so much to do. Personally, I really feel it when focus is slipping. So I religiously ask myself whether the juice is worth the squeeze. And the answer is usually no. Staying late to grind means borrowing against future energy. I know it's going to mess with my sleep and my relaxation at home and my ability to be present with my family that night. And as a result, it's going to mess with the quality of my work and focus the next morning. It's a double hit. It's actually a triple hit if an incomplete to-do list winds up weighing on you that night. The late sprint coach, Charlie Francis, used to say, your fast is too slow and your slow is too fast. He was talking about running, but it applies to productivity too. The problem he recognized was that high effort work predictably creates fatigue. Working at a non-sustainable pace is, spoiler alert, non-sustainable. So a lot of the sprinters that he met were grinding through workouts that did not make them faster, but did make them tired. If you were one of his athletes, he would make a choice for you. Create progress today and then recover tomorrow or take care of your recovery today so that you can create progress tomorrow. Part of my experience with ADHD is that a multi-step process, even if most steps are easy, can feel weirdly daunting. You see the actual work way in the distance, but you have to walk barefoot over scorching sand to get there. If you could just start, you would take care of business, except that you can't. So it's the cost of doing business that becomes the dilemma. If I'm struggling to focus, but feel like I have way more to do, I set up my tomorrow by preloading my work for the next day. For example, editing a podcast episode is, it's a whole thing. I have to open the editing software, find the file, find the beginning of the interview, adjust the audio settings. There's a whole bunch of stuff before I can even start the real work of editing. And none of these are hard individually. Most of them are pretty easy. It's just so many steps before I can even begin. So when I am feeling spent, what I do is all of the easy preliminary stuff. And so I treat things like an early level of Super Mario Brothers. I collect the coins, eat the mushroom, get the fire flower, raise the flag, enter the castle, and you know what? The dungeon can wait until tomorrow, but I'll be ready for it. I will be all leveled up for it. The part of my brain that wants to grind is soothed because I've pushed my capacity a little bit, but I've also been successful. I stack up a bunch of easy wins, I hit save, and then... I close my laptop. The creative part of my brain is relieved because it knows it will be able to warp right into the important stuff when I get started the next day. And my family, I do believe, appreciates the fact that I'm not a crusty, distracted grump. Win, win, win. Preloading 
doesn't just have to apply to your professional life. It can also refer to setting up your personal environment so that you're a single decision away from any action that you might want to take. And this seems straightforward, but there's some nuance here. Let's say you're sitting on the couch, you're binge watching a series and enjoying the show, but you notice that your back is feeling sore. And this type of stuff leads to a should feeling. I should be exercising more. I should be doing something. And what happens next is important. So let's say that you have a piece of equipment that you know how to use, but you think it's in your basement or your storage space. Actually, maybe you're only 80% sure you know where it is. And, and you know you might have to look around for it a bit. And you could, you could go find it, you know, dig it up, dust it off. But you also realize that by the time you do all of that, before you even start exercising, the motivational moment will have passed. Insert any other health behavior you like here, from eating better to sleeping more. No matter what, we've all experienced this, and there's this sort of demotivation that comes with knowing that, ah, I'm not even going to get started. And it is just as easy, maybe easier to think, I should start working out three days a week. Because no further action is required in the moment. It's the lack of clarity, though, the ultimately kills us. The statement is super fuzzy. There's no clear starting point in terms of action or time period. Most problematically, it's disassociated from the immediate moment. So you can call it procrastination if you want, but it really doesn't matter. It's just one more layer of friction between the immediate moment and action. So you go back to binge watching, maybe carrying a pang of guilt with you. I believe that a number of our Anxieties stem from an inability to respond to our motivational moments in real time. One way you can attack this problem is to better engineer your environment. And this is sometimes referred to as nudging. That is a term from behavioral economics. Here you traverse the many often hidden actions that exist between the present and your target behavior. So imagine that you're a mentor and that's uh, half human half human, by the way, and you see an intruder in your forest home, in principle, you should be able to take aim with your bow and fell that intruder, except your bow is unstrung, your arrows are jammed in a tree somewhere, you're not quite sure where they are to begin with, and, you know, while we're at it, you're overdue for some target practice. And the practical reality is that you're just not going to hit that sucker. So you swear, you'll, you you swear on whatever God that mentors pray to that you will never miss this opportunity again. And that's where preloading comes in. The skill of preloading involves setting things up, experimenting a bit, and discovering the unexpected gaps between your intention and then finally releasing that arrow. And I haven't lost you here, I hope, because I'm about to tell you the most important thing in this whole deal. And that is you do not actually have to fire the arrow for your effort to be worthwhile. We get stuck when we feel like effort won't transfer immediately into results. It feels like a motivational sinkhole, but that is an illusion. Whether you take effective action in your next motivational moment is far less important than whether you increase your odds of successful future action. So while you may not always be successful in the moment, your statistical likelihood of success increases. Past a certain threshold, you begin operating like a successful casino. You don't sweat periodic losses because on a long enough timeline, the house always wins and it's your house. All right, let's, let's think about a few examples. So let's say your motivation is to do a short workout. 
right? There you are on the couch. But in reality, what do you have to do? You have to maybe put on your slippers or shoes and go down to the basement storage locker, wherever it is, find the fitness equipment, bring it back to your living room, maybe dust it off. You have to decide what to do. You have to get into position and test a few things out, see how your body's feeling, figure out if you have to modify your original plan based on injuries and your current needs, everything else. And then finally you do the workout, right? So those are all the steps. And when you have a motivational moment, if you've already set yourself up so that you just have to do that final thing, you're going to take advantage of that. So this is me saying to go get the stuff. Uh, another example would be uh, nutrition. If you want to open your fridge and find something tasty and healthy, will you find it? Uh, you know, if you wanted to cook, do you have the ingredients? Do you have the tools? Do you have a recipe that you have no hesitation about putting into action? If you wanted to make a smoothie, do you have the ingredients? Do you have a clean blender that is set up on the counter, not filled with crust from whatever the last thing you made uh, would be? And then if you wind up needing to order food online, if that's what it takes, do you have your top three healthy options bookmarked or top of mind? Okay. Um, one more example, reading and reflection, right? I like to think about these in different domains of health. If you want to read more and want more time to reflect, do you have a low distraction space that you can use? Do you have a book that fits your available attention span and, and interests at the time of day? You'll typically pick it up. I mean, for me, I know that I'll have less patience and attention uh, at the end of the day compared to the beginning. And then finally, would adding friction make sense? You know, would unplugging your router or turning off some lights or unplugging your TV get rid of some potential distractions? If you have high level of motivation, then you are more than capable of cooking instead of ordering. You'll be happy to dig your kettlebell out of a storage locker and dust it off. And you won't mind shutting down Netflix in the middle of a cool action scene so that you can read or reflect. The problem is that high motivation is transient and tough to control. So the more pragmatic call is to design your environments to play well with low motivational states. Sprinkle the physical prompts throughout your environment so that you can make it easier to do things that you want to do more of and make it harder to do the things that you want to do less of. Finally, it's worth noting that you don't have to take dramatic action. Instead, you may just want to experiment with two or three small tweaks. See how things play out, adjust based on performance, be patient, but find ways to move forward. And when high motivation pays you a call, your best investment of that energy may be to upgrade your environment, making it easier for you to stay preloaded. The next concept I want to share is listening to your body. In his journals from the 60s, the late Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, imagines enlightenment in a simple phrase. I eat when I'm hungry. I sleep when I'm tired. Even within the monastic community, Thich was known for the depth of his mindfulness. And here he asks, what is being present if not being aware of how you feel? My mind zings and pings around in its natural state. I don't think that makes me different from any human. However, it's the frequency of those ricochets and maybe their power that stands out. Can you imagine asking a young Robin Williams to read the Daily News? You would have gotten one or two lines at most 
before he began riffing. And this is what made him a remarkable improviser and probably what would have made him a terrible 1950s-style newscaster. I don't try to suppress my thoughts or instill an authoritarian-style focus. As a young person, I tried and failed repeatedly to do this. So if you identify with symptoms of ADHD, the odds are pretty good you've tried this too. And the cycle can be hard on you, which is a high price to pay for something that doesn't really work that well. Fortunately, there are other paths forward, and you can start taking them anytime you want. One of the simplest is to focus on the moment. And physical sensation is one of our most powerful conduits to the present. Interoception, one of my favorite words, describes your ability to notice signals coming from your body. These are the proverbial calls coming from within the house. What are the first physical sensations that you notice when I ask you, like right now? Maybe it's the pressure of your body pressed up against a seat or your feet as you walk or stand. You may feel a sense of hunger or thirst, maybe a nagging pain, or on the opposite side of the continuum, a sense of comfort and relaxation. Naturally, we can't attend to all of these sensations all of the time, so they fall into the background when you focus on a more salient task. In ADHD, they often fall into the background of the background of the background. If you have ever had an argument with your child over whether they have to go to the bathroom or eat, you have likely experienced an interoceptive disconnect. There's no ADHD required. Littles are still learning their whole internal OS. You know, uh, if you, on the other hand, as an adult, have ever stood up from a long period of being seated only to notice a sore back, then you have experienced this too. The signals to change your position were there, but lost in the shuffle of whatever you were doing. Diminished interoceptive awareness brings some baggage. For example, a feeling of fatigue is often blunted, particularly when you are engaged in a really interesting task. As a double hit, fatigue also makes you less likely to notice fatigue in the first place. It's actually a triple hit because folks with ADHD are often more sensitive to the effects of compromised sleep. So this can in turn bleed into eating and satiety cues, messing with all of that, and it can all become kind of messy. Fortunately, the practice of attending to your body signals is not only accessible, it's engaging for a highly active ADHD mind. The process does not involve suppressing any thoughts or interfering with the natural functioning of your mind. Instead, you build the habit of checking in with your body frequently, perhaps beginning with your breath, noticing it. Are you inhaling or exhaling? And let me ask you that right now. Where are you in that breath cycle? You can also ask that question whenever you notice your mind wandering, or at least wandering into places that are not serving you. I have learned personally to welcome those thoughts, to join me, come for the ride as I return to my breath. So let's talk about some stuff with a harder edge. Chronic pain isn't exactly a fun thing to deal with, or anxiety for that matter, but these are both examples of tough feelings that can become powerful allies. And the reason is that a frequent sensation, even a deeply unpleasant one, can serve as a prompt. If it comes up frequently enough to be a through line in your life, then we can consider it to be 
a reliable prompt, and that creates an opportunity. The question then becomes whether you can attach a positive action to it. In the tiny habits system of behavior design, something I talk about a lot, this is called a pearl habit. You take an irritant and then transform it into something beautiful. So let's imagine that there's a button called less pain. Okay, you press it and pain goes away for a few minutes. And you put this sucker on your keychain and carry it everywhere. And whenever you feel pain, naturally you're going to press the button. That's going to become a habit really fast. Certainly when the pain becomes annoying enough. So now you have this ABC formulation, anchor, behavior, celebration. The anchor is when you notice pain. The behavior is when you press the button. And the celebration is when you savor that sensation of the pain going away. Human brains are really good at habituating to anything that takes away pain. And as a matter of fact, that often gets us into trouble. There is no pain button, obviously. Even narcotics only work in the short term until they become their own pain button. That is the crossover point into addiction where you have to take a drug, not because it creates pleasure, but in order to soothe the pain of withdrawal. So we need something more adaptive. Let us say instead that you have an exercise that you can perform just about anywhere, some kind of rehab exercise. It's easy for you to do, and it reduces your pain. Maybe not every time, but on aggregate. So the more often you do this exercise, the less likely you are to feel pain. It's a tiny leap of faith, more like a puddle-sized jump. But the problem is that you don't always get immediate gratification, and that tiny disconnect has grounded some pretty big ships. We struggle in these moments because we feel like an action is kind of pointless. That's where celebration comes in. So the question you have to ask is, what would help you feel pleasure about taking that action and reinforcing it? I can't speak for you. I can speak for myself, and I do this by relating it to a deeper value. I remind myself that I am moving in a direction that is important to me. So I began this section by talking about a Buddhist monk and I'm going to finish it in the same way because the criteria of mindful meditation is to allow thoughts to roll in and out of your mind without judging them or trying to suppress or change them. And this is often what we do with unpleasant sensations. We stuff them down or we distract ourselves from them, except that the act of doing that disconnects us from the moment and makes us more likely to get distracted. So when we are able to welcome sensations of any kind in real time and then respond to them, we are more fully present. You feel what you feel. And then when you're hungry, you eat. And when you're tired, you sleep. I want to leave you with a final thought, a quote from systems theorist John Gall, really one of my favorites. A complex system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that worked the inverse proposition also appears to be true. A complex system designed from scratch never works and cannot be made to work. You have to start over, beginning with a simple system. So that is my advice to you. Space monkey tested. Start with simple things and then proceed to keep them simple. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Shout out to the Unlearning Network, to Daniel Ross for our title music, and to Mike Ford for our additional music. If you are interested in checking out our weekly calls, we do this Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. Go to dadstrength.com, set up a time for us to chat, and we'll go from there. See you soon.